Hello, and welcome back to Bad Apple. I'm Riley. And I'm Helen. And I don't know about you, Helen, but literally one of my biggest fears is being falsely accused of a crime. Is this something that haunts you every day? Not every day, but probably once a month. (laughs) Right. I have never been very concerned about it. What stuff are you doing? What are you doing? (laughs) Good question. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe I I have a a persecution complex or something. I do always think someone's coming to get me. Mm, okay. There's no way of knowing just how many people in prison right now have been wrongfully convicted. There are at least 70 high-profile wrongful conviction cases in Australia, and in most cases, wrongful convictions are the result of overzealous or unprofessional interviewing techniques. While today's case is from New Zealand, there is definitely evidence of overzealous and unprofessional practices, including the lead detective sleeping with two of the victim's mothers during the investigation. Today we're talking about the case of Peter Ellis, a Christchurch childcare worker who was accused of sexually abusing children in his care but maintained his innocence for almost 30 years. Peter Ellis was born in 1958. His parents, both teachers, separated when he was nine years old. At 17, he left school and worked as a tobacco picker in Motueka before spending two years abroad. When he returned to New Zealand, he worked in a bakery and then left that job and applied for unemployment benefits. It was at this point that authorities discovered that Peter had received benefits in the past that he was not entitled to. In 1986, he was convicted of misleading a social welfare officer and sentenced to 80 hours community service. I'm not sure if maybe it's changed in New Zealand now as well, but in Australia, you now, if this happens, you just have to pay it back. So if you get interesting overpaid, whether it's your fault or not, you have to pay it back to Centrelink. Right, but he misled He did person. mislead, so that is bad. Maybe that's fraud. Mm, Maybe okay. that would just be fraud. Right, yeah. <laughs> anyway, it was this community service which led Peter to work at the Christchurch Civic Creche, a childcare centre. During his 80 hours of community service, his supervisor, Dora Reinfeld, was impressed with his presence in the creche, and he picked up continuing work. In reports back to the court after his community service, Dora said that, quote, Peter has fitted in extremely well and puts lots of energy into program planning. Fantastic team spirit. And another report on Peter's presence in the creche said that, quote, Overall, the picture gained of Peter Ellis is that of an outgoing, uninhibited, unconventional person given to putting plenty of enthusiasm and energy into his work and social activities, sometimes to the point of being risque and outrageous. So into program planning that it becomes risque and Mm. outrageous. Mm. Too much. Too much fun in the creche. Went too hard. Potentially, it was this unconventional nature that opened Peter up to the allegations of sexual assault that ended his career in 1991. The accusations made against Peter were set against the backdrop of a moral panic that had been prevalent throughout Christchurch in the years prior. This panic related to systemic sexual abuse against children and is thought to have originated from the daycare sex abuse hysteria which took over California in 1982 and the controversial Satanic Panic which developed in 1980. The Satanic Panic was sparked by the publishing of the now discredited book Michelle Remembers in 1980. Michelle Remembers is written by psychiatrist Lawrence Pazda and follows the story of his patient, Michelle Smith. Initially, Pazda was treating Michelle for depression after she had experienced a miscarriage. Soon into the treatment, Michelle expressed that she had something she needed to tell Pazda, but she couldn't remember what it was. Pazda employed the now widely discredited practice of recovered memory therapy, which includes techniques such as hypnosis, 
guided imagery and age regression in order to access and recover repressed memories. Pazda spent more than 600 hours using hypnosis to help Michelle recover memories of ritual abuse that had occurred at the hands of her mother and other members of a satanic cult in Victoria, British Columbia, during 1954 and 55, when Michelle was around five years old. Michelle recalls one specific event in 1955, which was an 81-day ritual during which she alleges that Satan was summoned, but Jesus, the Virgin Mary, and Michael the Archangel intervened to remove the scars inflicted by the abuse and block memories of the events until the time was right. Michelle has recalled this abuse to include being tortured, locked in a cage, sexually assaulted, and being involved in human sacrifice acts. Pazda and Michelle are now married. Interesting. Interesting dynamic. It is, isn't it? After the book was published, interest rose in the techniques used by the psychiatrist to recover the memories of abuse, and was given further credence at the beginning of the controversial McMartin preschool trials. In 1983, the mother of a student at McMartin Preschool in Manhattan Beach, California, made allegations that her estranged husband, who worked at the school, had sexually assaulted her son. The man accused was Ray Buckley, who was questioned by the police but was not prosecuted due to a lack of evidence. However, police sent a letter to around 200 parents, asking them to question their children about whether they had been abused by preschool staff or have witnessed odd behaviour from Buckley, including whether they have ever seen him tie up another child. As a result of this request, several hundred children were interviewed by an abuse therapy clinic, and 360 children had allegedly made reports of abuse during these interviews. However, the interview techniques employed some of the theory behind recovered memory therapy and involved suggestive and leading questioning which invited children to speculate or pretend about what had happened. I used to teach kids to swim. I think I've talked about that on the podcast before. And sometimes you would play games and get them to pretend like there's a shark in the pool or there's fish underwater or there's butterflies on the roof or something like that, like to get their attention. And sometimes they you give them an inch and they will take a mile mm. sometimes i would be like "Ooh, hug your kickboard like a teddy bear and then they'd just be like my teddy bear's name's john and he has brown fur and he likes playing golf blah 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 and i'm like okay cool you have an amazing imagination it's true now let's kick our legs a little faster i feel like i vividly remember being told to look for the butterflies on the roof during um backstroke mm. Yeah. Is that when you were doing it? Classic technique. Dude, I straight up saw butterflies. I ain't kidding. They were up there. You know? Funky pool roofs. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Like... Because it reflects the water. reflects the water, and it's like... Most of the time, like, did they just not finish constructing the roof? <laughs> like, why are pool roofs, like... <laughs> it's not finished. That's so true. You know, so it's all funky and, like, you know, mm. metal and random things up there. Pool reflection. Yeah. There you go. I guess what I'm saying is you tell a kid, let's pretend, let's explore our imagination, Mm. and they'll do that. Yeah. Yeah. These methods of questioning were heavily criticised, with some saying that the interviews led to false memory syndrome in some of the children. Medical experts even differed on the physical evidence of abuse which was collected, with some saying that it was too speculative or based on unsubstantiated medical histories. Ultimately, the criticism meant that the numbers of reliable testimonies dwindled rapidly. From 360, only 41 testified in the pre-trial hearings, and less than a dozen made it to the actual trials. Eventually, all the interview evidence was discredited at trial, with experts calling the techniques improper, coercive, directive, problematic, and adult-directed, 
and that many of the kids' statements in the interviews were generated by the examiner. The investigation lasted seven years, and the trial ended in no convictions for anyone who worked at the preschool. At its conclusion in 1990, it was the most expensive investigation in U.S. history. However, it was far from over. The McMartin case sparked theories that a network of underground satanic cults with devil-worshipping pedophiles were operating in white, middle-class American daycare centers. More than 12,000 accusations of organized satanic ritual abuse were received nationwide, but none of them were able to be substantiated. Testimonials from those who had undergone recovered memory therapy and discovered memories of abuse, symptom lists for those said to be experiencing repressed memories, and techniques for uncovering these memories were disseminated through popular culture, sustaining the moral panic in the United States and spreading it around the world, including as far as New Zealand. That is crazy stuff, dude. Yeah. Satanic panic. Yeah. How wild. The 90s were a wild time. Mm. I guess people were, especially the demographic it targeted, were more religious. Yes. If it came around me, I'd be like, dude, you've yeah. been watching too much Supernatural or something. Yeah. You all right? And yeah. I guess I was thinking about, in the shower the other day, I was thinking about how, I guess in the late... 80s in Australia or during the 1980s we kind of went through this phase of like a loss of innocence and we've talked about it on the pod before about people kind of realizing that other people do bad things that's following like the child abductions yes like the big ones yeah yeah and I feel like this is just another permutation of that where that's true yeah, parents have this reaction where they need to protect their children from this rise in mm. whatever. So they'll believe that there's these bad things are out there. That's true. And if they had, like, just a few years ago, they were not believing that their children could just be taken. Mm. So, like, how far of a stretch is it that a underground satanic cult mm. is doing this kind of stuff? Maybe not that much. Maybe not that far of a stretch. I don't know. Maybe just something to think about. We all would have been victims of satanic panic. Mm. In September 1991, there was continuous publicity of sexual abuse and ritual abuse of children in the local press or in national media. On the 4th of September, a Wellington sex abuse counsellor, Anne-Marie Stapp, told Christchurch newspaper The Press that, quote, New Zealand was fast approaching the level of ritual abuse awareness found in the United States. Further media reports indicated that it was common knowledge around town that, quote, various Christchurch police officers were hunting for a near-mythical pornography pedophile ring alleged to involve judges, Freemasons, and prominent businessmen. Finally, on November 3, 1991, the Sunday News quoted New Zealand police as saying, Satanism was rampant in New Zealand and linked to child pornography. Just 17 days after this, Christchurch mother, Gay Davidson, contacted the civic creche to make the first complaint about Peter Ellis. Davidson was a social worker and a self-reported victim of sexual abuse, and had written a handbook on identifying childhood sexual abuse. One of Peter's dogs had recently had a litter of puppies, and Davidson bought one of them from him, a male black puppy. Peter had shown Davidson's four-year-old son how to distinguish the sex of the puppy, showing him the genitalia. A few months later, Davison's son allegedly made a statement that he, quote, didn't like Peter's black penis, from which Davidson concluded that her son had been sexually assaulted by Peter at the creche. Peter was suspended from work and the police investigated, but determined that there was no evidence to support the claims. It's probably important to note, Peter is Caucasian. Yes, Peter is white, or at least white presenting white appearing we're not sure about his lineage but the kid's description of what he saw probably didn't belong to peter mm -hmm. 
possibly, possibly. We're just putting it out there. Possibly Those... some confusion around the puppy and Peter and ooh. yeah, just putting that like mm. misalignment out there because mm-hmm. we hadn't we hadn't disclosed what he looked like. Yes. Yeah. Good point. The New Zealand Education Review Office also investigated the conditions at the centre. Investigators spent a week observing the day-to-day operations at the creche and prepared a report which was largely positive, saying, quote, The staff ensure personal needs are met with warmth, care and consideration. The children appear happy, inquisitive and sociable, and that the children have high self-esteem. Everything seems to be getting back on track. However, despite the police turning up nothing and the glowing report from the Education Review Office, rumours began to spread. Parents started asking their children questions about their treatment at the creche, and stories began spreading around the group of parents. This prompted a second investigation by the police, this time aided by the Department of Social Welfare, who were responsible for managing interviews with the children. Social welfare psychologist Sue Sidey conducted these interviews, and while no children made any direct statements about indecent behaviour, Sue initially identified six children that she was concerned about. However, as these interviews continued, the nature of the allegations became more and more bizarre, particularly from one child who went by the alias Charlie. When Charlie was interviewed in May 1992, he told the interviewer that he was here to talk about Peter, quote, fiddling his rude bits. He elaborated, saying that when he was being changed, Peter had, quote, wobbled his dick and smacked his bum. When asked if he had ever seen Peter's rude bits or seen Peter get undressed, he declined to comment any further. Rude bits. I don't like the word, the phrase rude bits. It's just your bits. Yeah. They're not really... They're not rude, rude. are they? I'll draw the line at private. Fine. Because it's like, oh, you can choose whether or not you share them, whatever. Disclose them. Disclose them. If you, if you want to teach kids about consent or whatever, I'll draw the line at private. But yeah. Then, yeah, I don't like rude bits. Me neither. Yeah. It is a very, it's an adult thing to say, isn't it? It is, isn't it? Why do we do that? What I'm saying is... Oh, I see what you're saying. To suggest. Hmm. I'd say nothing. Okay. Three months later, in August 1992, Charlie took part in a series of interviews, and this time he had a lot more to say. Charlie started off by talking about an incident which had taken place in the bathtub at Peter's house, where Charlie was made to eat poos, and touch Peter's penis. He said that on the same occasion, Peter had put his penis up Charlie's bum, which had felt ticklish, and then dressed up as a witch and a judge, and threatened to change him into a frog or send him to jail if he told anyone about the incident. Further, he indicted other men from the creche, saying that he had seen them being cruel to other children. From this interview, police had enough material to charge Peter with three offences, an indecent act, indecent assault, and sexual violation. The interviews with Charlie didn't stop there. The following day, Charlie talked about an incident where he was part of a group of children which were put down a trapdoor into a maze, where they met Peter's friends, Spikehead, Stupidhead, and Boulderhead. In this maze, a sharp stick was put up Charlie's bum, and Peter's mother had given him a poisonous drink. In the following interview, he talked about another incident at Peter's house, where he was in a group of children that were forced to stand naked in a circle drawn on the floor, while adults stood outside the circle playing guitars. The children were told to kick each other, including in the balls and the kneecaps. He says Peter was photographing the children kicking each other, and described some of the adults as having, quote, slitty eyes, wearing white suits, and pretending to be cowboys, and said that three other creche workers, Gay, Marie, and Jan, were all present, 
After the circle ritual, Charlie says that the children were put into ovens and the adults pretended to eat them. He said that a man put a needle in his penis and the three creche workers, Gay Marie and Jan, also had hurt penises and vaginas. The interviewer asked why Charlie hadn't disclosed these incidents earlier, but he said, quote, Oh, I just remembered today. This interview resulted in another charge of committing an indecent act against Peter and charges against the other creche workers as well. Charlie was interviewed one final time in October 1992. By this time, the creche was permanently closed. Charlie alleges that he and other children at the creche were hung up in cages and had burning paper and sticks put up their backsides. Was there any indication to how old this Charlie kid was? I think all the children were in the three to four age bracket. Really? Yeah. That is much younger than I thought. Allegations were also made by other children. Some said they were buried in coffins. One boy claimed that his belly button had been removed with pliers. In relation to the circle incident, a parent who was not present even alleged that a boy named Andrew had been sacrificed. However, no child named Andrew was ever reported missing by anyone involved. Overall, the incidents are alleged to have taken place over a period of more than six years, from May 1986, four months before Peter started working at the creche, and 1st of October 1992, which was 11 months after he had left. Peter was arrested in March 1992 and charged with the initial offences, but this charge sheet would grow to include more than 45 counts of sexual abuse against 20 children at the creche. By the time the trial began in April 1993, the number of charges had dropped to 28 counts involving 13 victims. Some were dropped because the children removed their statements, and some were dropped because the Crown Prosecutor, Brett Stanaway, considered them so bizarre that they might have affected the credibility of other claims. Look, Brett, checks out. If Charlie's was the one that was used, how bizarre were the other ones then? It's true. Goodness me. I what don't were know. the other people telling him? I don't know. We couldn't write it. You know. During the trial, another three charges were dropped when two complainants, aged seven and four, admitted during their witness statements that the events they disclosed had not actually happened. The older sister told the court that it was the interviewer who, quote, taught her what Peter did, and the younger sister simply said that the incident she initially reported that she had been urinated on had not happened. At the trial, Peter's defense lawyer, Rob Harrison, attempted to have the video evidence of the interviews admitted as evidence and shown to the jury, as he believed that watching the children's behaviour during the interviews would cause the jury to cast reasonable doubt on the testimony. However, Justice Williamson ruled that the video recordings weren't relevant. On the other hand, information about Peter's sexuality and, quote, unusual sexual practices that he had engaged in with other consenting adults was deemed to be relevant. Peter had maintained a number of sexual relationships with both men and women. Discussing his sexuality, Peter had said, quote, In a relationship with a woman, I was, for want of a better word, bisexual, and with a man, I was monogamous. At the time, homosexuality, and probably even more so bisexuality, were considered deviant or taboo, and the Christchurch jury was said to be conservative. Both sides presented expert evidence on the testimony made by the children. The prosecution psychiatrist also supervised the interviews and advised on interview techniques and said that the complaints were credible and the children's behaviour was consistent with having been the victim of sexual assault. However, there was evidence that she had written to police expressing her concern about leading questioning from parents, 
but this was not disclosed or examined at the trial. The defense's psychiatrist questioned the consistency of this behavior, saying that in his experience, children who had been abused are usually distressed as they recount these experiences, but that the children in this case showed little to no signs of distress during the interviews or during their testimony in court. Potentially more crucial to Peter's defense was evidence from this psychiatrist about the capacity for children to remember events, even traumatic ones. The psychiatrist alleges that children could not recall events that had occurred at two or three years of age, where there had been a long delay between the event and when they were prompted to recall it. The children had all been aged two or three when they alleged they were assaulted by Peter, but only recalled that information in interviews after a period of time had elapsed. After deliberating for 24 hours, the jury found Peter guilty on 16 of the 25 charges. These included two counts of urinating on children, three counts of forcing children to perform an oral sex act, three counts of sexual penetration, and one count of forcing a child to touch his penis. What these verdicts showed was that the jury was reluctant to find Peter guilty on counts which involved physical violence and injury, but they were more readily accepting of allegations relating to indecent acts. Peter was sentenced to 10 years imprisonment. Immediately after the trial, a number of concerns about the reliability of the claims came to the public attention, one of which was suggestions that parents had been making claims of sexual assault in order to access payments. At the time, the Accident Compensation Corporation, the ACC, had a policy which automatically entitled anyone who entered a claim of sexual abuse to the payment of $10,000. One parent from the creche, Malcolm Cox, said that they were visited by a council social worker who gave them ACC claim forms and told them to, quote, get in quick to claim the money because lump sums were being abolished. By the time the Christchurch Civic Creche had closed, the ACC had paid more than $500,000 to 40 parents. In most cases, parents received the once-off payment of $10,000, but sometimes parents would claim for each alleged incident of abuse and would receive multiple payments. A conviction wasn't required for claims to be successful, and in some cases, payments were made before a charge had even been laid against the alleged offender. The year after Peter's conviction, in July 1994, an appeal was brought to the Court of Appeal. Helen's favourite court. Yes. They're certainly... Very well known in New Zealand yeah. cases. Yes. We do always be appealing. You do be appealing. Maybe because you keep messing stop it up. Stop right there. <laughs> I will stop you right there. <laughs> the key focus of this appeal was that the seven victims, in their evidence, had given the names of 21 other alleged victims, but none of these 21 children ever confirmed the allegations. On the fourth day of the appeal, the eldest of the seven victims, while giving her testimony, told the court that the evidence she originally gave was not true, and that she had only told her parents and the interviewer what she thought they wanted to hear, and that her mother had told her what she should say to the interviewer. The Court of Appeal considered that potentially, this was a case of denial on the part of the child, but ultimately they overturned the three charges relating to that child. On the remaining 13 charges, the appeal was unsuccessful and Peter remained in prison. Maintaining his innocence, Peter petitioned the Governor-General for a royal commission into his conviction and either a pardon or for the whole case to be referred back to the Court of Appeal. The petition was successful and the case was referred back to the Court of Appeal with expanded terms of reference, meaning they didn't have to determine the case on just one factor, but multiple avenues of error were able to be pursued. In 1999, the case was heard again, 
This time, Peter's lawyers focused on the contamination of evidence by parental questioning, multiple interviews which featured suggestive questioning, and the use of anatomically correct dolls. Expert opinion was presented at the appeal which concluded that, quote, given the conditions prevailing at the time, the level of parental contamination and the extremely suggestive interviewing procedures, the probability of the proportion of fact outweighing the proportion of fiction must be very, very small indeed. In other words, the testimony wasn't that reliable. However, despite this, the Court of Appeal were not persuaded that a miscarriage of justice had occurred and suggested that a Royal Commission of Inquiry would be better suited to explore the issues raised on appeal. Immediately, Peter petitioned the Governor-General again. This time, it was a petition for the Royal Prerogative of Mercy, which we have heard about before in the David Bain case. Basically, this is where the Governor-General can pardon a person. Yeah. He's going for the big dogs. Yeah, he's like, I need this just to be wiped away. Yeah. Peter's lawyers lodged the petition, which was passed on to retired High Court Judge Sir Thomas Thorpe for consideration. Why? He is retired. Um, often they get retired judges to, I guess, act as a consultant to the Governor-General. Damn. Because the Governor-General, A, doesn't really do much, and B, doesn't really know much, <laughs> and C, acts like they're really busy. So they get other people. She just roasted the GG. <laughs> Sorry, the GG. Look, I'm sure the GG does a lot, but realistically, they're just like a figurehead. It's like the Queen. You wouldn't be like, oh, I bet the Queen is an expert on e- the law of evidence. You I'd let her I mean? do it. I probably would as She's well. She's the Queen. I'd just be like, yeah, what, what do you get? What's the vibe? What's the vibe you're picking up? What's the vibe, girl? Tell me. What's the vibe? Elizabeth. Queen. Liz. Lizzie. Um, But yeah, they often get judges to act as consultants because they know a lot about... Oh, yeah. Plus, we keep paying them. And yeah, we're still paying them. So, so they can do something. May as well use them. <laughs> yeah. Thorpe conceded that the information he had received was limited, but concluded that it raised serious concerns that warranted further investigation. Firstly, he was concerned about the inconsistencies in the interview reports, where children had alleged abuse against another child, but that child had denied anything happening. Secondly, he was concerned that there was no oversight by the police in terms of cross-checking claims with other parties involved, before presenting the allegations to the jury. Thirdly, he was concerned about the fact that certain testimonies had been filtered out for being too bizarre as to make them not credible, and that they should have been also put before the jury so that they could, quote, see that the children were capable of outrageous and fanciful allegation. In summary, Thorpe was concerned about, quote, the claims of defecting interview techniques, the risk of contamination of the children's evidence, and the exclusion of evidence necessary to a proper assessment of the children's reliability. Ultimately, saying that it would, quote, be difficult to argue against the existence of a serious doubt about the safety of the petitioner's convictions. Soon after the Thorpe report came out, in February 2000, Peter was finally released from prison after serving the full 10 years of his sentence. Peter remained in prison for the full duration of his sentence, despite being eligible for parole. He refused to attend the parole board hearings to appeal for an earlier release, because it would have meant that he would have had to admit to the offences in order to show that he was fit for release. Really? Yeah, that's how you get parole. You're like, I did it. Well, you just have to say like, oh, I'm not that person anymore. I've recovered. I do these things now. So the flip side of that is you're saying, well, you did do it. Wow. Yeah. 
You did do it, but you're not that girl anymore. That's but... kind of a one-way-out track, isn't it? Yeah. And most people, like, concede, right? Because they're like, oh, I just want to get out. Wow. Yeah. Not Peter. Makes your tank. Mm. How many people just conceded to get out? Mm. Mm. That's true as well. The following year, in 2001, the Minister of Justice commissioned a ministerial inquiry into the conduct of the interviews in response to the Thorpe report. Sir Thomas Eichelbaum conducted the report with the assistance of two experts. They really just found another Sir Thomas? I know. That is so funny. They're everywhere, apparently. The report has been criticised thoroughly for a lack of rigour, as it determined that the interviews were overall of good quality, and while some contamination may have occurred through parental questioning, it was not enough to sufficiently affect the convictions. The report didn't comment on how it had determined the testimony of the children to be reliable, just that it was. After this somewhat unsatisfactory report, two more petitions were lodged appealing for a royal commission in June 2003 one of which had over 140 prominent signatories, including two former prime ministers, 26 members of parliament, two retired judges, 12 law professors, 12 queen's counsel, and a former Auckland police chief. It took two years for these petitions to be reviewed by the select committee. In its decision, it noted that the evidence at trial from the prosecution's expert psychiatrist, who oversaw the interviewing of the children, would not be accepted by the court if it were offered now and that the operation of the legal system in respect of this case did not inspire adequate public confidence in the operation of the legal system. A justice system should lead to certainty. In this case, it seemed to increase the sense of uncertainty. However, the committee ultimately rejected the petition for a royal commission, holding that such an inquiry wouldn't be practical. So they just made these comments and then were like, well, we're not going to do it, actually. Yeah. I think holding the inquiry would mean recollecting the evidence. Mm, that would be tricky. Yeah. After this time, there was a period of quiet in terms of appeals. Most avenues had been exhausted and Peter was likely readjusting to life outside prison. On the 25th of July, 2019, Peter lodged one more appeal to the Supreme Court after he had been sadly diagnosed with terminal bladder cancer. The hearing was scheduled for the 11th of November that year and in August, the Supreme Court stated that it would still consider the appeal if Peter died. Peter passed away on the 4th of September, just over two months before the hearing began, at the age of 61. He had maintained his innocence for 28 years since the first allegations were made. This did still raise an issue about whether the appeal would continue. Traditionally, courts in Commonwealth countries, including New Zealand, have operated on the principle that an individual's interest in judicial proceedings dies with them. Peter's lawyer, Robert Harrison, argued that this case was about more than just Peter's innocence. It was about addressing systemic issues in the justice system. Justice Williams took this one step further, questioning the traditional point of view in light of Tikunga Maori principles, saying, quote, This is a very Western idea that on demise you have nothing to protect, whereas the Tikunga Maori consider that an ancestor has even more reputation to protect. After a five-week adjournment to consider both arguments, on the 1st of September, the Supreme Court granted leave for the appeal to be heard. Damn. I love that. Justice Williams pulled out the big guns. He you, did. You cannot argue against that. No. The Tikunga Maori principles? You must honour them. Case closed. Yeah, that's all. I love that. That is so true. Yeah. Literally, who are we to say, like, what the meaning is to someone who has passed? Mm. 
when someone's no longer around to defend themselves and their own reputation, it's up to us. Yeah. Or their their descendants. However, this final appeal was delayed initially by the pandemic in 2020, and secondly by historical sex abuse allegations against Peter from 1982, which had been initially reported in 2019. The complainant allegedly approached police in 1992 or 93, but there was no record of this occurring. The Crown only became aware of the complaint in September 2019, but didn't bring it to the court's attention until over a year later. They took responsibility for the delay and also conceded that there was deficiencies in the evidence, but asked that they be granted leave to present the new allegations as evidence in the appeal. The Crown was allowed to present an application that the evidence be used in the appeal, and in March 2021, the Supreme Court heard this application. The complainant alleges that Peter molested her while babysitting her in 1982, when she was four years old, in a similar way to assaults that had occurred at the creche, which were on appeal in the Supreme Court. She said that when she watched a 2007 documentary, she recognised the man who molested her as Peter Ellis. Peter's lawyer argued that this evidence was not relevant to the crimes that were on appeal, and if it were admitted, it would expand the scope of the appeal. He also argued that there was no supporting evidence for this claim, and that the woman's statement in court had inconsistencies with earlier recollections she had given, evoking the idea that perhaps her memory of the incident was evolving. The Crown conceded that there were inconsistencies and no corroborating evidence, and said that it was up to the court to decide if it would be helpful to the appeal. The court reserved its decision on the matter, but before it could determine if the evidence would help the appeal, it was determined to be inadmissible in June 2021. After a series of delays, the appeal is scheduled to begin in October 2021. Which, fellow listeners, is next month. Yeah. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. This is going to have to be one we add to the follow-up list. We have is, a lot of those, Riz. It's ever-growing, isn't it? Yeah. We should probably address that soon. Probably, before it gets out of hand. That requires, like, dedicated listeners who have listened to all of them, though. That's true. Not that I don't have faith in you listeners, but we have now over, like, 30 episodes. We're nearing 40. So. That's a lot. We're warning you now. Catch up. Catch up. <laughs> so you know what we're talking about when that <laughs> comes around. What do you think about this one, Helen? Oh, my goodness. In a nutshell, you know? <laughs> You're asking me? There's a lot going on, isn't there? Yeah, there's a lot to put in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. I may need four or five nutshells. Mm-hmm. It really seems that the climate was the perfect one for this to happen. Mm. That's true. And Peter very much was the perfect character for this to happen too. Mm-hmm. And let's not forget, he ended up there because he was doing community service for fraud. Essentially fraud, yeah. I can't help but feel like it really was all... Sort of like perfect storm vibes. Perfect storm. Is that what you're looking for? Yeah. Mm. That's the energy I get from this. I don't know how much truth there is in this. And yeah, some of the stories are so out there that it kind of clouds your ability to even like Mm. figure it out or have a say, you know? That's very true. It throws you, those stories. It does, doesn't it? And I think from my point of view... I don't know whether or not I can actually decide whether I think something happened, but I think I have decided that this was definitely not very judicially rigorous Mm. in that the evidence doesn't seem to support Peter's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, and that's the standard that you need to to be held to in a criminal trial. Yeah. 
I can't comment on his character. Was he a good person? I don't really know. Objectively, it seemed to have been like proven again and again mm. that the investigation was shady. Mm-hmm. And many people agreed. Exactly. On that. Yeah. So that's pretty much like not up for debate at this point. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So yeah, I agree. And I guess on the flip side of that, maybe, or like a sadder part of this story is that maybe the children involved and the parents involved were going through something, whether or not it's related to directly to sexual abuse or whether it is related to this sort of more generalized panic or anxiety. Mm, Or even the need for money. That too. Which we just... Yeah. Was also a component. This was a community childcare centre. Any Mm. of them could have been, like, low socioeconomic, Mm -hmm. struggling financially. And the fact that that issue or those issues have sort of been overshadowed by this, I guess, unresolved inquiry, I suppose, into what was going on is kind of disappointing and it means that those people weren't then able to access the actual support that they needed. That's true. Yeah. A lot of elements of the story are, like, the worst of humanity. You're so right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the panic, the desperation, yeah. the convicting. Mm-hmm. The like, he was almost like with that conservative jury and mm-hmm. his character, almost like condemned, you know? Mm-hmm. The fact that the children's statements were taken as far as they were taken so that they were sort of taken out of context almost, like they were, I guess, encouraged to say more and more, discredits almost anything that was said that could potentially be true as well. We'll see what happens in the appeal next month. Mm, you know what else? Just to, on a final note. Mm-hmm. God, governments and whoever else is involved, courts probably, the legal system, but governments, they love to delay something until someone's died, until they can't have a say or they can't try and get compensation. Oh, that's a favourite. Damn. That seems to happen so often. Right. They'll just... Oh, administrative delay. Oops. Oh, we. Oh, we've got to hear this other appeal. Oh, conveniently, we've got this other witness. Oh, you've passed away. Sorry. Sorry. Now you can't get access. Yeah. Whoops. Oh. I don't know. Maybe that's a bit conspiracy theory of me, but big government. Big government. Mm, <laughs> Coming possibly. for you today. Possibly. Who knows? Maybe. Can't come to a conclusion here. It's too hard. That being said, he did only lodge the appeal after he had been diagnosed with a terminal illness, but. Mm. Look, mm. We could the government, little... yeah, they weren't in a rush to, like, help him out here. And then there was a pandemic. Yeah. So, look, maybe it's not as malicious as I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't think, you know, it's in. The, I'm putting it in a too hard basket. Me too. Some cases we're very clear on, like last week, but this week, I ain't clear on anything here. Me neither. And that's okay. Yeah. That's fine. But you know what they say, 99 guilty men should walk free before you imprison one innocent man. Wow. The old adage. <laughs> Whether or not that rings true in a modern context. You just sprouted a white wig in front of me. <laughs> you are now an old man. <laughs> yes. <laughs> With a hammer. A mallet. What are they called? <laughs> um, a gavel. A gavel. <laughs> a I have mallet. a gavel upstairs. <laughs> How lame. Anyway. Nah. It's cool. It's pretty cool. All right. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye. Bye.